we now get to chapter 14, which is called Realization. The concluding passage of the Satipatthana Sutta gives a prediction, quote-unquote, of realization within a variable time period. The passage reads, If anyone should develop these four Satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for him. Either final knowledge here and now, or, if there is a trace of clinging left, non-returning. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbāna, namely the four Satipatthanas. So that's guaranteeing within um, uh, a um, minimum of seven days that uh, either if, if the Satipatthanas are applied fully and completely, that one would reach either the level of a non-returner or an arahant. So uh, <coughs> that's quite a promise. And uh, it has um, been in the past that uh, certain um, monastics have, have read this and thought, so all I have to do is be mindful for a week, right? <laughs> and so uh, going to Ajahn Chah saying, so you know, it says in the Satipatthana that you just have to be completely mindful for a week, and that's, that's enough to crack it. And he said, yeah, that's right. All you have to do is be mindful for a week. Wow, great! That's good news. And then the aforementioned monk then going off and uh, trying to be totally mindful. Um, and then after an hour and a half, ah, oh, dang, I forgot. Uh, I lost where I was. I was following my breath non-stop and then suddenly I was distracted looking at the, the clouds or the geckos or worrying about my foot rot. And uh, so over and over again, he was trying to... Okay, back to zero, start again. <laughs> so starting his seven-day period of total mindfulness over and over and over again. And and then um, after a few days of this, going back to Ajahn Chah and saying, so how do you do it for seven days? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, of course, Ajahn Chah made a great uh, mileage out of that, saying, yeah, I see, it's, yeah, it's only se- it only takes seven days, but... Um, it's a it's a um, very demanding requirement to be uh, fully attentive uh, without without a break uh, and to be um, fully mindful for just uh, in, in all these different ways to, for a seven day period. It was also that that same monkey he began by calculating how many breaths there would be in a week. But okay, so it's just like twelve thousand four hundred eighty three breaths. So okay, great. So that's. Uh, I'll just stay with that and just keep keep counting them until I'm until I'm done, and then it became clear it wasn't quite that simple. I will first examine this prediction and discuss whether the progress towards realization is gradual, quote unquote, or sudden, quote unquote. In the remainder of this chapter, I will try to explore some ideas, perspectives, and suggestions on the goal of Satipatthana mentioned in the above passage, the realization of Nibbāna. So, gradual and sudden. According to the above prediction, 
Satipatthana practice has the potential to lead to the higher two of the four stages of awakening, non-returning and arahantship. The fact that this passage speaks immediately of the two higher stages of realization underlines the thoroughness of Satipatthana as the direct path to Nibbana, drawing attention to its capability of leading at least to the eradication of the five lower fetters, the Sangyojana, and therewith to complete freedom from sensual desire and aversion. So the, those two, um, the, the state of anagami, um, the sense desire and ill will have been completely abandoned along with um, uh, self-view and uh, attachment to um, conventions, rites and rituals and, uh, and doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. So those five lower fetters are completely uh, abandoned. So that's what he's referring to there. And then the um, uh, with uh, the um, say stage of anagami then the two kinds of subtle forms of desire, rupa raga, so attachment to uh, subtle forms of, um, uh, say, absorption, um, say, uh, states of, uh, of, uh, of jhana based on rupa, on form, and arupa raga, on formlessness, so that the uh, attachment to some blissful states that, uh, that are very wholesome, but still um, that attachment or identification with those blissful and clear states, uh, rupa raga and arupa raga, um, that is part of what is uh, the experience of an anagami, and then those are are um, let go of, as well as the um, the last three fetters of uh, asmimana, the conceit of, of identity of I am, and udacha, restlessness, and uh, avijja, ignorance. Uh, then, uh, when those have all been let go of and transcended, then arahantship has uh, been arrived at. The other notable feature of this prediction is the variation in the length of time for Satipatthana practice to bear fruit. Apparently, even someone of inferior ability can gain freedom from desire and aversion within a maximum of seven years, while someone of superior ability can do so within only seven days. However, in evaluating this prediction, it needs to be kept in mind that the number seven might have a more symbolic character in this context, indicating simply a complete period or cycle of time. And there's a, a note on this um, uh, that according to Professor Rhys Davids, uh, the number seven is invested with a, quote, peculiar magic nimbus in Pali. Nimbus means a cloud, literally means a cloud, but like a, an aura or an association or a, a reputation. So the number seven is invested with a, quote, peculiar magic nimbus, unquote, in Pali, which uh, uh, militates against taking this prediction too literally. An example of such symbolic use of the number seven can be found in the Anguttara, where the Buddha related a past life of his in which, as a fruit of seven years of loving-kindness practice, he was not reborn in this world for seven eons, for seven times he became a Mahabrahma, and for many times seven he became a universal monarch, possessed of the seven treasures. Furthermore, in the above prediction, at the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, it's noticeable that when counting down uh, one year is not followed by eleven months, as should be expected, but by seven months, indicating that the sequence does not follow mathematical logic. 
So uh, that uh, is um, <coughs> also been uh, say observed by others that uh, the number seven indicates a totality in ancient Indian mythology. The prediction to realization in the Chinese Majjama Agama allows for even quicker awakening than the Pali discourses, suggesting that realization can occur in the evening even if practice has begun only that same morning. Impressive. The possibility of such instant realization through Satipatthana within just one day or night is also recognized by the Pali commentaries, while the discourses state this only in relation to the five factors of striving, the pancha padhanianga. Um, and um, uh, on the note on that, that's a, a, a quote from the, the a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, the Bodhiraja Kumara Sutta. That's uh, sutta number 85 in the Majjhima. Um, it says, um, however, with the specification that the Buddha himself was to train the practitioner so that if the Buddha is your personal teacher, then you might be able to crack it in a day. You have to wait for the Buddha Maitreya to, to pull that one off. But uh, So in that uh, sutta, the Bodhiraja Kumara Sutta, uh, the, <clears throat> the Buddha himself was to train the practitioner. This suggests that for a realization within a single day, the personal presence of the Buddha as the teacher is required. The five factors of striving mentioned in that discourse are confidence, physical health, honesty, energy, and wisdom regarding the arising and disappearance of phenomena. So that those are also in that uh, Sutta number 85 in the Majjhima, that's those so, um, five qualities are, are sort of stipulated or described as being part of the, the basis for practicing Satipatthana, as well as having the Buddha as your personal teacher. And, then, and that can lead to um, full awakening within a, within a day and a night. The variations in the time periods for Satipatthana to bear fruit suggest that the decisive breakthrough to realization can happen at any time during correct practice. That is, once Sati is well established, supatitita, every moment is pregnant with potential awakening. This raises the question of the extent to which progress to realization follows a gradual pattern as against an unexpected sudden breakthrough to awakening. According to the discourses, it's impossible to measure exactly the quantity of defilements eradicated during a day of practice. Just as a carpenter cannot measure the extent to which the handle of his ads has worn out during a day of use. Uh, and the Buddha uses this uh, uh, image, um, say a carpenter uses like a, a saw or a, um, uh, a tool on ads like a, to, to chip away wood and um, when he first picks it up to use it when it's new the handle is is smooth but then after using it for a year or two years or five years then you can see the the imprint of the fingers and the thumb in in the handle and the carpenter can't say exactly how much wood has been worn away each day but after a period of time you can see the imprint of the of the fingers um uh, in the in the handle of the tool because he's been using it the same hand has been using the same tool uh, day after day for, for all that time, but you can't say so much has been worn away during a, a particular day. And if you want to find that sutta, that's in the Sangyutta, in the di connected discourses in the Khandavaga, 
That's uh, section 22, sutta number 101. <clears throat> Nevertheless, just as after repeated use a carpenter will realize that the handle has worn out, so will a meditator, after repeated practice, realize that the defilements are growing weaker and are being eradicated. This simile indicates a gradual, though not precisely measurable, progress towards realization. And that's also very, very frequent advice uh, given on uh, meditation retreats and to people um, in the monastery. Um, and so probably many of you have received this or even given the same advice <coughs> when someone comes and says, I'm really not getting anywhere, I meditate every day, and it just seems like I'm just sort of trudging along and my mind seems to be making no progress whatsoever. And then it's almost without without fail if you say, well, rewind to five years ago or ten years ago and think of something that would get you upset or get you excited or make you anxious um, five years ago or ten years ago and think about how you relate to that now. And they go, oh yeah, right. <laughs> and that's almost invariably the case. I've, I've very, very rarely known anyone to say, well, actually, I was better then. <laughs> uh, so it, it's generally the case if you, if you just... Uh, take a sufficient span of time you see well yeah it, it does change and just that image of the of the um the handle of the tool also if you've been to uh, any of you might have been to tibetan temples or um uh, uh, places uh, i remember seeing in a temple in bhutan a particular um uh, sort of floorboards in front of a shrine where um the same practitioner had had stood and done their prostrations every day for so many years you can actually see the footprints worked into the wood the the toes and and the the, the shape of the feet were just worn out of the um uh, of the the timber since the, in the tibetan tradition they have this a uh, practice uh, the nundro of doing a hundred thousand prostrations and uh, so standing up and doing prostration full length to the ground and standing up again. So part of their, their prelimin preliminary practices is to do 100,000 prostrations. And so that if you stand in the same place every day for 100,000 bows, then you'll wear out the, uh, the floor in the same way. The gradual nature of the progress towards realization is in fact a recurring theme in the discourses. They explain that progress in the practice of the Dhamma deepens gradually in a way comparable to the gradual deepening of the ocean. And there's a passage that I'll quote from uh, that Ajahn Tanis wrote next much of. In, uh, it's from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. And it's in a discussion of his about this same issue of, of practice being sudden or gradual and, and the nature of insight um, and how that works together. And uh, so Ajahn Tanisaro um, has translated this and is a part of his um, say discussion and illustrating it. So this is from the Udana section 5, uh, Sutta number 5. Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop-off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this Dhamma and Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to gnosis, 
only after a long stretch. Gnosis, uh, as in jnana, or knowledge, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, gnosis, knowledge, understanding. The fact that this Dhamma and Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to gnosis only after a long stretch, this is the first amazing and astounding fact about this Dhamma and Vinaya, that, as they see it again and again, has the monks greatly pleased with the Dhamma and Vinaya. And... Um, he uh, also compares that, um, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro points out that it was um, an interesting uh, uh, say footnote to that, that the Buddha was aware that there was a, a, a long, sort of continent, a shallow continental shelf that drops off rapidly in the Indian Ocean, that um, there's not really any way that an ordinary person would have known that at that time, but they, comparing that to the, uh, the the continental shelf of, of uh, or the subcontinent of, of India and how that how the, uh, the the land drops off under the water and using that as an image to describe the you know the gradual change and then a sudden drop into the deeper uh, uh, sort of deeper reaches of, of the uh, of the ocean a passage in the Anguttara Nikaya illustrates the gradual character of the process of purification with the example of gradually refining gold where at first gross and middling impurities are removed, followed by finer impurities. And if you want to track that one down, that is Anguttara Book of the Threes, Sutta number 101. Similarly, in the realm of mental culture, one at first removes the gross types of impurities and is only then able to proceed to subtler levels. Another simile compares the practice of the threefold training in ethical conduct, sila, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom, panya, to a farmer who has to plant and water his crop in due time. Neither the farmer nor a practitioner of the threefold training has the magical power to say, let my effort ripen now and bear fruit, yet their constant effort will bring about the desired results. So in that sutta the Buddha says, you know, the, the farmer doesn't have any kind of magical power to say, um, uh, let my, my crop you know, grow and ripen uh, overnight. But if, he, uh, if the, the farmer prepares the ground and then puts in the seed and looks after it, then in the natural course of things, the, the, the crops will, will grow up and uh, ripen. Um, the, the, and then the, um, without any particular special or magical abilities, then the, the Buddha says in exactly the same way for a practitioner. Um, this simile indicates that progress to awakening follows a natural dynamic comparable to the growth of plants in nature. Another canonical illustration of the progress towards realization is that of a hen sitting on her eggs. In due course, the hen's unrelenting sitting on her eggs will lead to the hatching of the chicks, just as in due course, a practitioner's unrelenting practice will lead to realization. The chick's sudden emergence from their shells depends on a gradual process of inner development through the hen incubating the eggs. Similarly, the sudden breakthrough to Nibbana depends on a gradual process of inner development and mental cultivation. Just as the hen cannot directly cause the chicks to break their shells, the breakthrough to Nibbana cannot be directly made to happen. Both will occur in their own time if the necessary conditions are in place. And um, if you want to find that sutta with the chicks, 
That's uh, Sutta number 16 in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the Chetokila Sutta, number 16. These passages clearly indicate that progress to awakening follows a gradual course. On the other hand, however, several realizations of stream entry described in the discourses take place in a rather sudden manner, usually while listening to a discourse given by the Buddha. On considering these instances, it seems almost as if to hear a discourse was sufficient for awakening, without much need to develop concentration gradually and engage in insight meditation. Here, however, it needs to be taken into consideration that if someone had realized stream entry while meditating alone and in seclusion, this did not occasion a discourse and therefore was not recorded later. So, um, you, uh, uh, I think he refers to it in, in a moment, but in the suttas, when someone becomes narahant, then often they will go and tell the Buddha or they'll tell their companions or someone will say, oh, do you realize that, uh, you know, Venerable... Um, uh, Kimbila just became an arahant, uh, but they never. They, it's never. Oh, uh, Ajahn Chittapala just became a stream enterer, or you know, or the uh, um, venerable Ruchiro just became an anagami. You don't. You don't get mentioned. <laughs> for the, uh, it, it doesn't get a special mention for the first um, uh, three levels if someone is just practicing by themselves. But often, when uh, like the Buddha is giving a, a Dhamma teaching, he says, "Oh, and then five hundred lay people became uh, sotapanas when hearing this Dhamma talk, or <coughs> or, you know, or 50, uh, 50 of the uh, monks and nuns became arahants hearing this Dhamma talk." The one that has the the biggest result is the fire sermon, the Aditta Pariyaya Sutta. A thousand uh, a thousand monks uh, all became arahants at the same time. So that's the not that the Buddha was keeping score, but that's the record. So a thousand arahants in in one fifteen minute discourse. It's a good return. So, <clears throat> but when someone realizes stream entry while listening to the Buddha, the circumstances of the event cause it to become part of the later reported discourse. So that yeah, it would be um, when they're talking about so many people having uh, had these realizations after the event. Thus, it is to be expected that mainly the latter type of stream entry realizations are recorded in the discourses. The same discourses do, in fact, document the potential for insight meditation to lead to the realization of stream entry, which would be a meaningless statement if stream entry were to depend solely on listening to a discourse. Besides, if simply listening to and understanding a discourse were sufficient for realization, the Buddha would not have given so many exhortations to meditate. And then Venerable Analyo gives an extremely long list of, of passages where the Buddha says, "Meditate. Uh, you know, do not be do not be slothful, lest you be remorseful later." There are these roots of trees. There are these empty rooms. These empty kutis. Meditate. Do not be negligent. Uh, impressive number of uh, <laughs> passages where he says that. So that uh, it's also um, having said that though that there's already an uh, interesting uh, comment by the Buddha where he says. Um, it's in the Diga Nikaya. Um, he says there are two kinds of miracle. There's the miracle of psychic power, like walking on water, flying through the air, reading people's minds, seeing into past lives, and such like. Uh, that's uh, the miracle of psychic power. And then there is the miracle of instruction. Uh, he says of these two, the greatest, the greater kind of miracle is the miracle of instruction. So that 
Uh, he points out that to be able to hear some words, and as you hear the words, for that to bring about the change of heart and uh, and a awakening and realization, that that's a more significant miracle than being able to fly through the air or read somebody's mind or look into your past life activities. So before I carry on, any particular questions or comments, thoughts? Um, former teacher of me also explained this uh, chicken with the eggs, mm-hmm. so it was a bit more uh, nice with, the, like he said, the Buddha said, like I was a chicken in the egg, mm-hmm. and he's the first to break out, and then by the, uh, what do you call it, they're aroused by the, the, the peeping of the first chicken, mm-hmm. the other come out too. I think it's the same one. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the same sutta. He certainly uses that same image, that he's the one, the, the first chick to break out of its shell. Yeah. And so that, that uh, it's a, it has a sort of encouraging effect on the other eggs. So, oh, they can hear the, <laughs> the, the noises. I'm not, I, I'm not sure, I'd have to check that. It might be the same sutta, but uh, that's uh, when the Buddha talks about his own awakening. Amazing that a, a world's religious leader compares himself with the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> there are many ways that the Buddha is extraordinary. Okay, so to continue, a fairly condensed version of the gradual path can be found in one instance when a layman, whose name was Uga of Hatigama, which means elephant village, um, despite being slightly drunk was nevertheless able to gain stream entry. So he was a, he was a, a very unusual layman. He actually, uh, in the Book of the Eights, in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, there are eight wonderful and marvelous, thi- marvelous things about the, uh, the layman Uga. And then, uh, <coughs> and then uh, when he, he just makes that statement and then goes off into his kuti and leaves, you know, leaves everybody hanging like, what's so special about this layman? And so then they go to the layman Uga and they, they ask him, and he describes how he was a, a like a rich, uh, rich layman. He was kind of partying uh, with a bunch of friends, and then he just saw the. And he was slightly drunk, or more than slightly drunk, um, having his his sort of um, in party mode with his mates. And then he saw the Buddha, and and instantly he became sober, and his faith and, and inspiration in the Buddha just just rose up, on just on seeing him. And then he paid respects to the Buddha, and the Buddha gave him um, a Dhamma teaching, and he became a stream enterer right there. So even though he was uh, obviously not not uh, fully free from the effects of alcohol in his blood, <laughs> so that was one of the, the wonderful and marvelous things. And then um, he so he took on the five precepts as well as celibacy. And another of the the marvelous so quote unquote marvelous things about the layman Uga was then he um, he was married to he had four wives, and so he, he sort of turned around and said to his wives, "Well, I'm going to be celibate. So um, you know, if you want to uh, to you know find another husband, you know, I'm more than welcome. You know, you're more than welcome to do so. So please, you know, just whatever whatever will make you happy, just go right ahead." And he said, "When and when I uh, I had that conversation with my with my wife, uh, well, my wives, then." Uh, uh, it was completely matter-of-fact. There was no kind of internal uh, change or emotion going on, on in me. It was just uh, it was very sort of straightforward and and, um, and uh, you know, uncomplicated thing to thing to be doing. 
Exactly what his wife or well, his wives felt about it isn't recorded. <laughs> but I, I think they must have read that, realized that something pretty strange was going on. That their their sort of party animal husband had suddenly had this religious conversion. You know, in the middle of the party. You know, it's like they're still you know in the in the midst of their of their picnic. So they, uh, I guess, they realized, okay, well, better just go with this. And, and um, anyway, that's. In the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Eights, um, uh, Sutta number 22, in the Book of the Eights. Uga. He's obviously an interesting character. U-double-G-A is how you spell it. Uga. In this particular case, the impact of personally meeting the Buddha was apparently so powerful that the breakthrough to stream entry could take place in spite of the fact that just a few moments earlier he'd been inebriated. That's a fancy way of saying drunk. Non-English speakers. This layman is not the only such case. For the discourses also report the attainment of stream entry at the time of death by another layman who during his lifetime had been unable to abstain from alcohol. So this is the famous Sarakani who took, uh, Sarakani who took to drink. So that's, um, I thought I might read that out, since um, people can be quite um, uh, fixed on the idea that, well, of course, you know, anyone of any accomplishment or attainment has to abstain from alcohol. And uh, they had that view at, um, in the Buddha's time, and, and certainly nowadays that's, that's how people understand things. But you do have this interesting... Um, uh, instance of uh, of Sarakani, the the Sakyan. So this is uh, uh, in Sangyutanikaya Connected Discourses, section fifty-five, Sutta number twenty-four. So that's in the Sotapati Vaga, the the Connected Discourses about Stream Entry. And this one's known as Sarakani who took to drink at Kapilavatu. So it's in the Buddha's hometown, Kapilavatu. Now on that occasion, Sarakani the Sakyan had died, and the Blessed One had declared him to be a stream-enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as his destination. Thereupon a number of Sakyans, having met and assembled, deplored this, grumbled, and complained about it, saying, It is wonderful indeed, sir, it's amazing indeed, sir. Now who here won't be a stream-enterer when the Blessed One has de- uh, declared Sarakani the Sakyan after he died to be a stream-enterer? with enlightenment as his destination. Sarakani the Sakyan was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. So it's like, well, anyone can become a stream enterer now. I mean, it's like this guy was a total drunk. How on earth can uh, he possibly have any real accomplishment? What, you know, there's, what's, the, well, you know, what's the master talking about? This is, this is crazy. And so when they say, it is wonderful, it is, it is amazing, that doesn't mean they're necessarily enthusiastic about it. It's like, you know, it can also mean like, it's ridiculous, it's incredible. Then Mahanama, the Sakyan, who was the, the ruler uh, of the Sakyans and also a relative of the Buddha. Then Mahanama, the Sakyan, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him and sat down to one side, and reported this matter to him. The Blessed One said, Mahanama, when a lay follower has gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, how could he go to the netherworld? For if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, it is of Sarakani the Sakyan that one could rightly say this. 
Mahanama, Sarakani, the Sakyan had gone to refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. So, how could he go to the netherworld? Here Mahanama, some person, possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus. The Blessed One is teacher of devas and humans, the Enlightened One, the Blessed One. And so in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. He is one of joyous wisdom, of swift wisdom, and he has attained liberation. By the destruction of the taints in this very life, he enters and dwells in the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, realizing it for himself with direct knowledge. This person, Mahanama, is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the domain of ghosts, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations of the world. And so he goes through various different um, uh, degrees of, um, sort of uh, from the, the most refined to the more and more coarse levels of uh, insight and understanding uh, until finally he gets down to here Mahanama some person does not possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha he is not one of joyous wisdom nor of swift wisdom and he has not attained liberation however he has these five things the faculty of faith the faculty of energy the faculty of mindfulness the faculty of concentration the faculty of wisdom and he has sufficient faith in the Tathagata, sufficient devotion to him. This person too, Mahanama, is one who does not go to hell, the animal realm or the domain of ghosts, to the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld. Even if these great sala trees, so then like these trees, <laughs> even these great sala trees, Mahanama, yeah, if, if they could understand what is well spoken and what is badly spoken, then I would declare these great sala trees to be stream enterers no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as their destination. How much more then Sarakani the Sakyan? Mahanama, Sarakani the Sakyan fulfilled the training at the time of his death. So you can say he sobered up at the last moment. <laughs> but uh, that's what it says. He, he fulfilled the training at the time of his death. So uh, that's a, uh, something very reassuring to alcoholics, recovering alcoholics and, and such like. Uh, that... Uh, you can lose your way, but also if uh, one has made um, uh, you know, sufficient uh, progress or has this quality of, uh, of faith and, and trust, even though that there's um, a lot of weakness, then um, that, uh, that is something that will close the gates to the, the lower realms. And also this, uh, this last comment about the trees, this is kind of unique. I think it's the only place where the Buddha says something like this in the, in the suttas. If, they, if these trees could understand what is well spoken and what is badly spoken, so just having enough wisdom to know that's true or that's not true, yeah, to know what something is in accord with reality and what's not in accord with reality, just that sufficient degree of, of faith and understanding and, and wisdom, that's enough to, to uh, guarantee stream entry. So that's an interest that's uh, in the Sotapati Vaga, the connected discourse is about stream entry, Sutta number 24. Okay, so to continue. A closer consideration of this discourse suggests that this layman, Sarakani, was probably someone who had earlier progressed so far on the path that stream entry had to take place at the latest at death, despite the fact that in the meantime his ethical foundation had deteriorated. And in the... Um, then there's a, the footnote on this, it says, uh, Sarakani completed the training at the time of his death, which indicates that Sarakani attained stream entry at that time. So 
That was sort of at the moment of death. And also, it's significant that when in the dying process, the influence of the body and the body chemistry tends to diminish as the, 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 the consciousness separates from the, from the body. So um, uh, it's, not, it's not uncommon when someone is dying that if, even if they've had a lot of uh, medication or um, they have had um, you know, physical difficulties that have obstructed the mind, that as the, the, uh, the influence of the body diminishes, then the, the, um, the mind's uh, no longer being so uh, uh, tied to the body, the fact that there might be alcohol in the body or, or morphine or whatever, um, <coughs> drugs in the body becomes less significant so that there can be a, a particularly, um, uh, say, a clear period of time just at the, uh, as the, uh, the life is coming to an end. Not always the case, but I, I've certainly known that to be happening. So, at <clears throat> the time of his death, which indicates that Sarakani attained stream entry at that time. Since uh, that sutta uh, has the same set of terms used in the definitions of the Dhamma follower, Dhamma Nusari, and the faith follower, Sadha Nusari, that's also mentioned in the um, uh, sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, it seems highly probable that he had been such a follower, quote-unquote, and was thus bound to realize stream entry uh, uh, latest at death. And uh, so that that's a, uh, a passage in the Majima that talks about these two kinds of, of disciples, a faith follower and a Dhamma follower. Uh, I didn't uh, look up that particular reference. Sudden experiences of awakening can even lead all the way to Arahantship. A case in point is the ascetic Bahia, who we uh, mentioned, the one who has um, had that um, brief teaching from the Buddha and was knocked down and killed by a runaway cow. So a case in point is the ascetic Bahia, whose full awakening came within minutes of his first meeting with the Buddha, immediately after receiving a short but penetrative instruction. Bahia is certainly a prototype for sudden awakening. From consideration of the background to his awakening, it becomes apparent that Bahia's gradual development took place outside the Buddhist scheme of training. At the time of his encounter with the Buddha, Bahia already possessed a high degree of spiritual maturity, so that the brief instructions he received were sufficient to trigger a complete breakthrough. So Bahia, uh, you'll remember, was a yogi, a kind of a bark garment-wearing yogi, and had heard of the, the Buddha as an enlightened teacher, and had walked all the way from the, uh, the west coast near, uh, near Bombay, uh, all the way about a thousand miles to, um, to where the Buddha was, and to uh, ask for instruction from him. And as it says in, in, the, in the, the account here, Bahia must have developed a high degree of mental purification by whatever type of practice he was following, since, according to the Udana account, he mistakenly deemed himself already fully awakened. The sincerity of his aspiration becomes evident from the fact that once a doubt about his presumed realization had arisen, if you remember, Devata had come to him and said, Bahia, you are not enlightened and you're not on the path to enlightenment. Um, so please don't pretend to yourself with other people that you are enlightened. And then Bahia, to his credit, says, well, are there any enlightened beings in the world? And then the Deva says, well, actually, there is this Samana Gautama who lives in, in, in the Jetavana near Savati, and he is a truly an enlightened being. And then Bahia, then and there, started walking um, to cross India to go and meet the Buddha.
So uh, he immediately undertook the journey across half the Indian subcontinent to meet the Buddha. His sense of urgency was so strong that he even went to search for the Buddha on his arms round, unable to wait for his return to the monastery. Most of the instances mentioned so far reveal the powerful influence of the Buddha's personal presence, which provided a potent catalyst for realization, as one would expect. <laughs> On further perusing the discourses, additional examples of at times remarkably sudden realizations can be found. In an all-out attempt to reach realization, Ananda finally gained full awakening at precisely the moment when he'd given up striving and was about to lie down to rest. This is a famous story. This is, again, something that appears very often in Dhamma talks about uh, trying too hard because the story goes that um, the Buddha had passed away. The Parinibbana was on the full moon of May and they, uh, the, um, the Sangha had decided that uh, a, a group of Arahants would gather together and, and go through the teachings and the Vinaya discipline. Uh, King Ajatasattu had provided uh, a, um, a residence for them outside of of uh, Rajagaha, and so there was going to be a gathering of 500 arahants. Uh, unfortunately, Ananda, who had perfect recall and had memorized all of the Buddha's teachings, was not an arahant, he was an anagami. And so the Venerable Mahakasapa has said, if he's not an arahant, he can't come to the meeting. No pressure, <laughs> but unless you're an arahant, you can't, you, you, you can't come to the meeting. So, uh, Venerable Ananda, the night before the meeting is supposed to happen, the full moon of, of July, um, when the Vasa's rains retreat is going to begin, he's up all night trying to make the breakthrough. And it's said that he, he hadn't reached Arahantship before because he was always so busy fussing around, helping to look after the Buddha's affairs and taking care of visitors and, um, and looking after the Buddha's well-being that he, uh, he was, his attention was a bit divided. Uh, <clears throat> So anyway, there he was, all night long, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, and the dawn is beginning to show in the sky. He still hasn't reached realization. And uh, he, uh, he, he thinks, well, uh, I've been up all night and trying my hardest, um, and, uh, and still you know, realization has not been, uh, has not been reached. I, I, might as well, I might as well take a rest. And... Uh, <clears throat> and you know, it's going to be a long day anyway. So he, uh, as, as it said, he, as he was sitting down on the bench, after his feet left the ground and before his head hit the pillow, he uh, reached arahantship. And so he's the only person to be, become enlightened outside of the four postures. He wasn't sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. So, <laughs> so Ananda was very unique in many ways. So, but also that is a very good example of trying too hard and the the. Uh, the effort, the efforting being an obstruction to realization and that when you just drop back a, a gear, like uh, if you go into um, overdrive, say, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, same speed, less revs, then you can uh, go into a different different mode. And uh, apparently, according to the commentary, um, it doesn't appear in the actual Vinaya account, but according to the commentary, in order to demonstrate his enlightened state, Ananda arrived at the meeting you know, hovering in full lotus, flew into the meeting uh, you know, a meter off the ground. So, just in case you guys you know, have any doubt, you know. And uh, 
So there was always a, there seemed to be an ongoing tension between Venerable Ananda and Venerable Mahakasapa. Ananda was all too too cheerful and friendly and chummy and uh, accommodating, and Mahakasapa was a sort of <laughs> stern ascetic. And uh, so there was a bit of a frisson, a kind of dynamic between those two. But, uh, <clears throat> there's a certain point where uh, where um, the, uh, where Mahakaspa calls him uh, calls him boy Kumara, and he says, "I've got I'm 80 years old. I've got grey hair on my head. Please don't call me boy." <laughs> <laughs> so one one point where Ananda kind of gets a little bit bad tempered, <laughs> but I can understand that. So uh, elsewhere, a nun, and on another occasion, a monk, both on the verge of committing suicide through despair at their practice, their minds refusing to cooperate and to um, be uh, continually out of control, about to hang themselves. Uh, elsewhere, a nun and a, and, a, and a monk, on the verge of committing suicide, were saved, as it were, by awakening, feeling the noose around the neck. And those verses, if you want to track them down, they're in the Terry guitar, verses 80 and 81, and in the Terra guitar, verses 408 and 409. The commentaries even recount the story of an acrobat who gained realization while balancing on the top of his pole. That one, that's the commentary. So, it's uh, possible, but uh, that is not so, quite so reliable. All these instances demonstrate the sudden and unpredictable nature of the event of awakening. They show that although a gradual progress towards realization is the rule, the time required for such gradual preparation to bear fruit varies greatly according to the individual. This is also a central implication of the different time periods listed in the prediction of realization at the close of the Satipatthana Sutta. Thus, early Buddhism pro uh, proposes a gradual development as the necessary preparation for an eventual sudden breakthrough to realization. Viewing the path in this way, as a combination of these two aspects, reconciles the apparent contradiction between the frequently occurring emphasis in the discourses on the need for a particular type of conduct and for the development of knowledge, uh, while, other, uh, while other passages show that the realization of Nibbana is not simply the result of conduct or knowledge. So that some places it, it points out you need to be acting in this way and you have to understand things in this way. In other places it doesn't seem to be um, specific at all, like with Sarakani, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the drunk, and, uh, and so forth, or someone about to commit suicide. Uh, there's a, a, a note then on, on this particular point um, from the Anguttara, where Sariputta was asked whether realization was a matter of knowledge or of conduct, or of both. To both of which he replied in the negative, explaining that both were necessary yet not sufficient condition, conditions for realization to take place. So both, the con, both conduct and knowledge are, are um, uh, necessary, but they, they also need each other in, in various ways. Similarly, according to the Sutta Nipata, purity is not simply the result of view, learning, knowledge or conduct, nor can purity be gained in the absence of these. So again, that's a... Um, it's not just a matter of having the ingredients, but uh, it's uh, 
um, you can't do without them, but it's also how the, the, the ingredients are, are, are put together and the, the, the depth of realization that is um, say, uh, uh, manifesting from it. Not only is it impossible to predict the precise moment when realization will take place, but from the viewpoint of actual practice, even the gradual progress towards realization does not necessarily unfold uniformly. Instead, most practitioners experience a cyclic succession of progression and regression. I think we all agree with, <laughs> with that. One step forward, two steps back. That's the customary mode. Progression and regression oscillating within a fairly broad spectrum. If these recurring cycles are considered within a longer time frame, however, they reveal a slow but consistent gradual development with an ever-increasing potential to culminate in a sudden realization of Nibbana. To the implications of such realization, I will now turn in more detail, but not today. <coughs> so any particular questions? Thoughts, reflections, James. I was just wondering if this variation on sort of what's required is that because each person's unique. Yeah. They don't have their own past that you can't really predict what's going to work for an individual. It might be one thing for one, and it might just be on something could just trigger it then without being a formula. Absolutely, everybody's different, and I say that with with great regularity. So that um, um, a, a situation or a particular experience for one person will be extraordinarily meaningful and transformative, and somebody else won't even notice it. it, it it's not predictable because all of us are, are unique in, in various in various ways. So that. Um, it's one, also one of the aspects of Ajahn Chah's teaching is that he, he very much treated everybody as unique cases right? and, and also advised different kinds of practice or different approaches uh, to people and uh, yeah, according to their own character, their own situation, uh, you know, what, what would be helpful. So that uh, he, he didn't see the value of having like one form of practice that everyone was supposed to, to follow, but rather... Um, yeah, encouraging people to to use things that, that fit their own nature, uh, but also to be to be recognizing that that you are your own teacher, and that uh, the the sort of the formal teacher, the the ajahn, is just helping you to teach yourself, really, but, uh, and that the um, the point is that you are you're looking to see where your strengths are, you're looking to see where your obstructions are, and and so you're crafting the path um, and the different skillful means that, uh, according to what's going what's mean, what's helpful for you, what's what's meaningful. Because it, sometimes you can you can be fixed on an idea like I want to develop jhana, but maybe your mind is really just not geared to that, and that you've got a very um, sharp thinking mind and uh, and. Uh, the mind is just not going to sit on a single object and stay there, but and so if you if you fixate on then I've, I've got to I've got to get to Arupa Jhana or I'm never going to be liberated. It's like if you're tone deaf and you want to be a violinist, it's not going to work 
you can you can spend hours, thousands and thousands of hours, and you might be able to replicate some sort of via, you know, musical behaviors, <laughs> but because you really can't hear it, it's never going to be quite in tune. It's never going to be quite right. But um, and but so mostly what you'll 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 reap is disappointment and weariness. Uh, but if instead, well, rather than being a uh, a musician, if you if you realise, well, actually, I could just be a mathematician instead, and, <laughs> and your mind is totally geared towards mathematics. Like, oh well, <laughs> uh, I'm, it doesn't matter that I'm tone deaf because I'm really good at, at, at mathematics, and I can use that as an avenue instead. So that um, uh, say exploring what your own character is, where your blind spots are, where your gifts are. Uh, that's essential. It kind of, it's kind of taking responsibility for your own your own practice, and and then just being ready to learn from from everything, rather than thinking, oh, I've got the insight is going to come like this, so I've got to learn from that. It's more it's more to do with being ready to be um, to uh, to learn from uh, from whatever life presents in in its own unique ways for you. Is that a hand at the back, or are you just yawning? <laughs> okay. Very good. Siddhanta, yes. Uh, I remember the exact detail, but uh, Eckhart Tolle, of present movement of fame, said that he had, uh, in his late 20s, he had severe bouts of depression, and then all of a sudden he lost his ego completely. Would that be a similar uh, phenomenon? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, can be. I mean, those kind of things can happen. Sometimes they are um, temporary. Sometimes they are irreversible. He used to come here in the in the eighties. He was very quiet, depressed <laughs> philosophy student. So I don't. I, I was. Uh, I might have even been the guest monk at the time. I can't remember. But Ajahn Sundar remembers him. But he was very, very quiet, shy. Um, I think he was at Cambridge University, suffering over a PhD. Um, yeah, there's a, so sometimes that the, it's just a, a spontaneous awakening that happens uh, apropos of nothing very much. There's a a, a, a woman teacher in the states um, called Byron Katie, um, and she uh, she was a very um, poor. A working class woman living in a trailer, uh, a kind of um, unsophisticated, poorly educated woman, and she's in her, this trailer and she saw a cockroach walking across the floor. And then the whole universe just opened up. And, and life was never the same again. From being a kind of trailer park. <laughs> working class uneducated person suddenly boom and uh, so she, at first she didn't realize what what was happening at all and then slowly she as she sort of digested the experience and talked to people and she was able to to make sense of it and she's now quite a well-known well-respected teacher out of nothing based on nothing she's not wasn't like a sort of practitioner or spiritual student of uh, of any of any kind at all I think as far as I know, it was just there's a cockroach and <laughs> suddenly the, everything changed. Yeah. So maybe uh, 
going to the larder. And <laughs> Are you the one that's going to change my life? But the, the, the trick is, it's not the cockroach. It's like uh, there's a story of uh, Tolstoy, uh, who was a, a nobleman. He was a Russian nobleman. And, uh, but he was very sympathetic with uh, the socialist causes, and he used to like to work with the, the um, farmers and laborers on his estate. It's like a big country estate that he had. And uh, on one occasion, they were, they were cutting the corn, and uh, with a, with, they were scything the corn. And he, his mind went into this, this altered state and uh, of extraordinary clarity and brightness. And he just cut acres and acres and acres of corn. Uh, all, you know, he was working all day long in the sun. And he has no, no effort, no tiredness. His mind kind of clear and bright. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, wow, that was something. And then they say he's, he's, he cut hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn trying to get back to that state. <laughs> <laughs> he could never get there. He's got a lot of sweat and blisters. So they say. But it wasn't the corn, it was the mind.